Well, we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, So uh, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 19, and if you're going to be using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you should be able to find that on page 59, page 59, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. I'll go ahead and read through the whole chapter if you want to follow along. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites had left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So... Moses went back and summoned the elders, the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourselves warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, this is the word of the Lord. We respond, thanks be to God. Well, as a child of the 80s, There are certain movies that are iconic for me, to the point of remembering details about when I watched them. In particular, was Back to the Future. 
I, I still remember my dad, his band had been practicing in our living room, and so he hooked up the TV to the PA speakers. I remember sitting next to those speakers as Marty McFly got up and played Johnny Be Good. I'm serious. I remember this. Detailed. At that moment, I knew I wanted to play the guitar too. And particularly, I wanted to play that song. But it would be some 15 years that would pass before I went and bought myself my first guitar and the little book, Guitar for Dummies, so I could start to learn. Funny enough, I never did learn how to play that song, though. Uh, But that's not all I remember of that movie shaping me. I remember watching him skateboard around town in 1985 and the famous chase scene in 1955. And I remember riding my skateboard down a hill. In hindsight, I think, how did I not die? But I remember riding down steep hills thinking I was Marty McFly. And how I could not wait for the year 2015. I wanted to be the first in line to get a hoverboard. So much for that dream. And finally, I remember the third movie asking my mom to buy me a cowboy-style poncho which he wore when he claimed his name was Eastwood, Clint Eastwood. Isn't it funny how movies or books that you've read can shape you? I'm sure if we took the time to talk about it, each one of you would be able to think of a movie or a book that you've envisioned in your mind that has shaped you in some way, maybe for a little while, maybe for a longer period of time. I mean, at one level, that's what all education is doing, is it not? It's showing you something and repeating it for you so you'll learn it. Some things require much more repetition, like multiplication tables. Uh, Other things tend to stick with you. They grab you the first time you see them or experience them. Or at least that's the way it should be. You see, such is our fallen human nature, that we can be those who experience the grace of God in our lives in powerful ways. We are certain we will never doubt or forget God's grace again. But then we wake up tomorrow to some illustration, to some irritation, rather, uh, to some life circumstance, and we find ourselves quickly forgetting. Do we not? That is precisely what we have seen in the people of Israel in the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, Remember, this whole thing began on this very mountain that they have arrived to here, with Moses showing up and seeing a bush burning but not being consumed. Uh, Moses hears God, the creator of the universe, speaking to him from the bush, and that sight causes him to immediately do everything God commanded. Oh, wait, no, that's not what happened. He argues with God in the bush. Lord, pick someone else. Uh, Lord, I'm kind of a bumbler. Can't, Can't you send anybody else? He sees what should be a life-shaping thing and then argues with a bush. But he's not the only one. Think of what Israel has seen so far. They've seen God's glory and power in the ten plagues. They've seen God turning the Egyptians' hearts to be favorable towards them after God has wiped them out. They've seen God in the pillar of cloud and fire by day and by night. But God didn't stop there. He displayed his glory through sending them through the Red Sea, parting it so they walked on dry ground and bringing it back to crush the enemies, the Egyptians. They've seen his provision and water and food from heaven and water from a rock again and victory over the Amalekites. What haven't they seen? And yet, as we saw last week, they still said, is Yahweh with us or not? Isn't it funny how fickle and foolish we can be? 
See, we can remember a stupid movie 30 years on and how it shaped me and how easy and quickly I can forget the grace of God, which has remade me for eternity. Well, our passage for this morning is yet another instance where the book of Exodus has God working to shape his people by emblazoning on their minds an experience that should be unforgettable. In particular, our passage for this morning shows how God is preparing priests. That's our sermon title. And he will do it this way. The argument of the passage is this, that God makes his people priests to image himself to the world. And God does this, makes his people priests to image himself to the world through redeeming them, through consecrating them, and through appearing to them. Those are three points that we will walk through this morning. But before we start those points, there's one other structural piece for the book we need to consider. This is really the halfway point of the book, chapter 19, and Exodus 19 through 24 serves as the next major section, but 19 all the way through 40 is Israel at Sinai. They're all there for this whole time. Now, if you have been following along with the book card, the bookmark that has the sermons, I messed up, and so if you're reading the passage ahead of time, next Sunday you need to read chapter 19 through chapter 24. It stops at 23, but the whole section is 19 through 24. We're going to slow down here in chapter 19 because this is going to set the background and the purpose for God's making his covenant with Israel, which is what 20 through 24 is going to continue doing. So, for our first point, God makes his people priests to image himself to the world, and he does this first through redeeming them, verses 1 through 6, as we saw. Well, the opening verses that we read, they give us the setting. If you saw it, it's, this is as they come to Mount Sinai, the third month, the first day of the third month. So remember, Passover took place, and it was the tenth day of the first month, so it's been less than two months, roughly seven weeks in. Seven weeks, Israel has seen all these wonders of God letting them out. And during that time, they have almost gone from bad to worse. Treasonously declaring that they'd rather go back to serving Pharaoh at first, uh, to then they said they'd rather die in Egypt, to finally last week again questioning whether Yahweh was even with them or not. Which is to say... God now is finally bringing them to this mountain to prepare them to be priests. But it is not based on anything they've done. They have been entirely faithless. You see, God's delivering them was clearly prior to their exercising any faith. God's saving work is always first. Then he calls us to walk in faith after he's delivered us. That's why Moses uses the metaphor there. God says, I carried you on eagles' wings. It's demonstrating the entire passive nature of our part in salvation. God moves first. He carries us. And this same exact pattern is played out again in the New Testament. Uh, Think of all the metaphors that the Bible uses for salvation. We must be born again. We must be spiritually resurrected, brought from death to life. We must have our hearts of stone taken out and have a heart of flesh put in. We must have our blind eyes open so that we can see and believe. All the metaphors of salvation are showing us what God must do before we are able to respond in faith. God acts first, enabling us to respond. That's the pattern that began back with Israel here. 
God delivers and redeems and saves his people first, then he gives them the instruction of the law and calls them to walk in faithful obedience. And through Moses, God is reminding them again of what he did for them. That's why there are repeated pronouns there in those first six verses. I delivered you. Remember all I have done. After God has done, after God has transferred and saved and redeemed his people, then they respond in faith. And that is why the Exodus is the kind of quintessential paradigm used for salvation, even later in the Old Testament and in the New. Uh, Salvation is referred to as kind of our Exodus, highlighting the necessity of God moving first. We have to have a power from outside of ourselves, just as Israel. And so that's why one commentator puts it well. While God's redemption of Israel was unconditional and unilateral, his redemption created a relationship between God and Israel that had clear expectations. Expectations regarding how the people should respond to God's act of deliverance. God expected the people to live according to his laws. He expected them to obey. So we read there in verse 5, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and holy nation. In other words, What we've seen throughout the Exodus so far is God delivered Israel from service to Pharaoh unto service to him. And if Israel will serve God, he's already delivered them, but if they will serve him, then God will use them to be a kingdom of priests. And and one scholar put this rightly, these verses are actually Israel's mission statement. God is saying, I delivered you for the purpose of making you kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But what is that exactly? Uh, What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, for the first Bible readers, this would have drove them back actually to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Here's why. The kingdom of priests, the king idea and priest idea, actually the language comes from Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve were created and they dwelt on the mountain of God. That's what Eden was called. They enjoyed God's very presence, and it was their job to mediate God's presence to the world. See, they were made in the image of God, and that was bound up with Adam and Eve being king priests over God's good creation. Uh, They were to subdue or have dominion. Those are king words. They're to to rule God's under-rulers, to expand the territory and border of God's garden off the mountain and around the world. And then they were to work and serve. Those two words are used of the priests. They're serving and working in the tabernacle and temple. Adam and Eve were priest kings made in the image of God. They were to mediate God's presence and rule to the world. And that's what's happening to Israel here. Israel is corporately now on the mountain of God. They have arrived there. And he says, if they obey, then the whole nation corporately will be a kingdom of priests. See, earlier in Exodus, we learned that Israel is the corporate son, Exodus 4.20. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, God says. Well, they are corporately a new Adam, God's son. They are corporately imaging God through their work of being king priests. So that is this holy nation idea. There to be a nation as a whole people corporately who images God to the rest of the nations. As priests, they have special access to God, and they are to mediate from God to the people of the world, the nations, and serve the nations. So, 
As with the first part of the Exodus, God's purpose has been bound up with salvation to the world. Remember what he said to Pharaoh. I have done this for this purpose so that my name would be proclaimed and my power displayed to the world, to the nations. So one scholar put it well. Israel will display to the rest of the world within its covenant community the kind of relationships, first with God and then with each other and then with the rest of the world that was originally intended for all humanity. See, what is required for the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth like the seas is for God's people to be obedient and for them to radiate and mediate his holiness as priest kings. That's the call on Israel here. And that's why Sam read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2. Because this original mission and commission given to Israel is now given to the church. All that language is now applied to the church there in 1 Peter 2. It's the church who is the chosen people of God. It's the the church who is the royal priesthood, the chosen nation, God's special possession, a kingdom of priests. Uh, But it's interesting. Notice the flipping of categories. The church is a holy nation, but we're international. Uh, The church is a kingdom of priests, but we're from all sorts of different kingdoms. We are, Peter says, the foreigners and exiles who keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is, all the non-Christians, and when they see our good deeds, they will glorify God. So this is what makes the new covenant so much better. Whereas the Mosaic covenant failed to mediate God's presence to the nations in the new covenant, God's people are those called from every tongue and tribe and nation. So in other words, it's not that new covenant members are more obedient than Israel. No, we're just as prone to wander as they are. Well, the difference is that Jesus came as the only truly faithful priest king. See, he was the only one who truly ruled as God would have had him rule. And the only one who mediated between God and man as God would have us mediate. He perfectly imaged God to the world, mediating God's presence to the nations. And so Peter says, he is the chosen and precious cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So friend, maybe if you're visiting this morning and you are not a Christian, it is God's purpose then to display through this church's members the gospel. As you, unlike Israel, which was a community of relatives, the church is made up of all kinds of people. Uh, people from various cultures and ages and experiences. Uh, we have different nationalities and socioeconomic backgrounds. And God has called us all together called us to prioritize this local church family, even over our biological families. See, unlike Israel, who was united by family ties, local churches are united by Christ in union to him. So whereas Israel failed and kept it all in the family, in the new covenant, God is succeeding of making a diverse kingdom of priests, calling people to himself, making them mediators, ambassadors. He's succeeding because he redeemed us Not because we're smarter or better, but because he chose us in Christ and built us on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So you see, friends, Jesus came to succeed where Adam and Israel and even we have failed. He is the cornerstone building up the true temple of God. And although he was faithful where Adam and the Jews and we often fail, Though he obeyed perfectly, he took the punishment we deserved. He was nailed to the cross, as we were singing about earlier, so that all those who would come to him 
the stone which the builders rejected. Those who repent of their sins and trust in him will be saved and united to him in a local church as living stones built on the foundation of Christ, mortared together to him and each other. Well, friends, that is what the local church is seeking to do. We're a ragtag group of people who have no earthly reason to like each other or be in the same room as each other singing songs together are made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not because we did something, but because God did something in Christ. Well, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you wonder about how it is that God does this, I'd love to speak with you further after the service. But the first way that God is making priests and making himself known through us as priests is by reminding us that he redeems a people for himself. That's the first point. The second point now is he does so through consecrating his people. Let's look at verses 7 through 15. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set them before all the words the Lord had spoken and commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with an arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day and abstain from sexual relations. So Moses has gone up the mountain, and now he comes back down. In our passage, you're going to see three times Moses goes up and back down. In this actually section of Exodus, it's seven times Moses is going to go up the mountain and down the mountain again and again. And Moses, he goes back up the mountain, or he went down the mountain rather, and he, when he went back up, he carried the message of the people. So Moses spoke to them, and the people said, everything the Lord says we will do. So Moses walks back up and tells them, the, the people say they'll do everything you say. Now, of course, the Lord doesn't need Moses to mediate for him. It, rather, Moses is imaging exactly what the people are meant to do. Moses is mediating between God and Israel, just as Israel is to mediate between God and the world. So, by way of a brief point of application, this is precisely the way the new covenant leaders are called to do also. Uh, We're to train the people by demonstrating and teaching what God has called us all to do. Notice, Moses isn't doing anything special in one sense. He's mediating between God and people, just like Israel is. Moses is serving as kind of a prototypical high priest. And likewise, in the new covenant, the New Testament, this is why God has given the church elders and pastors. We are meant to be those who demonstrate what it is to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. So to my fellow elders, just as Moses is modeling what all Israel is called to do, so too are we meant to model for the members of Bethany our priestly calling. We're to bring God to others, uh, first and foremost with lives and speech that are built on a certain character that God outlines. We're to be those who are always reminding the people of their redemption that they have in Christ. 
And then we're also to be those who go back to God and intercede for the members in prayer, regularly interceding for them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 explains it this way. Paul says that the men who serve as pastors and elders in the local church are gifts that Jesus has given to the church, and they are to model through their teaching and lives so that the members will be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So in the New Testament, it's not that the, uh, the pastors and elders are the ones who do the ministry. They seek to lead in teaching and equipping the whole church to do the work of the ministry. But only insofar as we elders are helping to teach and helping to model, only insofar as we are growing in holiness, will we be able to lead well. So members of Bethany, pray for the elders. I pray for us that we would continue to be growing in maturity and holiness and service to the body. In so doing, you are fulfilling part of your calling to be a priestly kingdom because you are interceding for us too. You are going between us as well to the throne of grace, saying, Lord, help the leaders. Okay, well, Moses here is making these trips up and down the mountain as an example, as the prototypical high priest. So he goes back down the mountain, as God tells him, to consecrate the people so that they will be ready for the third day. There's two days of consecration, and the third day, the Lord is going to appear on the mountain. And they're to wash their clothes, just as the later priests are going to wash their clothes before the sacrifices in Leviticus. And then there's this last note in that verse, they're to refrain from intercourse as part of the preparation for seeing the Lord. Now, sadly, throughout church history, there's been periods where, uh, where sex has been something that has been degraded and, and thought of as something, well, it's necessary for kids, but we really need to. But that's not a biblical view. Quite the opposite. The marital union is one of God's good gifts. It is meant to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. However, just as Paul will tell the Corinthians that there are certain times when a husband and wife should agree together to focus on prayer for a short break, that's what God is calling Israel to do here through Moses, saying, just, just pause. And one commentator has put it really well. The restriction was put in place at this moment because the Lord wished to have his people's hearts holy for himself. That they were to be reminded that all the earthly cares, as much as possible, were to be renounced, that they might give their entire attention to the Lord. So he doesn't say, don't, don't be with your spouse because there's some evil in it. It's to say, for a moment, pause and consider the Lord. And the reason for that is because they're supposed to consider how they have been consecrated or set apart so that they can be king priests. So Moses is not only to consecrate the people, though. Did you hear what it said? He's to consecrate the mountain. He has to put limits around the mountain. If anyone touches it, they're to be killed. Not killed by hand. They have to be killed by a stone or an arrow. Because if you touch them, their dirtiness, their uncleanness will get off on you is the point. So for those who are familiar with the tabernacle, now think of it this way. So in the tabernacle, there's the outer court, there's the inner court, and there's the Holy of Holies, right? Put that vertical, that's what you have at Mount Sinai. The outer court is the base of the mountain where the people will gather. And they dare not approach the inner court, which is the slope of the mountain, or else they'll die. And nobody goes into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest, which is the top of the mountain that God comes down onto, just like in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. So Mount Sinai is a picture of this tabernacle that God will come down on the Holy of Holies. And Moses is, again, the prototype of the high priest who will go up into the Holy of Holies. But he goes up multiple times, as we see in this section. So the reasons for this layers of consecration, though, we have to consider. 
and it is giving us a vivid picture of sin and the fall. You see, just as Eden was the mountain of God, and just as Eden was the place where God walked with his people openly, now, though, there has to be separation because of sin. As you to sin and the fall, there's a barrier and a border, and not just one, there's multiple. The barrier, by the way, though, it doesn't seek to protect God, it protects the people from God, because his holiness will consume. That's the point. And sadly, though, the necessity of this barrier, uh, the, the, the reality of the depths of God's holiness and the depths of our sinfulness, it rests lightly on modern hearts and consciences. See, we, we can so easily assume that, you know, well, sin was something I kind of used to do. It's not so much a thing anymore for me. We can so easily think that, you know, uh, I, pretty much all the big sins in my life are kind of gone. Friend, I would just say is that, is that is revealing the fact that our modern Christian culture thinks small thoughts of God and his holiness and rather big thoughts of men and our ability to be improved, which is why our passage is at pains to show God's holiness. Don't touch the base of the mountain, let alone go up the slope, let alone go all the way to the top. No, even those who would dare to touch the base were to be put to death. And I think, again, the reason why for Christians, we're happy to confess God's holiness verbally, but we don't let it rest on us, is because we have a rather small view of God, and we have a rather large view of our goodness. So consider Isaiah 64, 6. Declares that all of us has become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That is a far cry from the idea we are getting better all the time. Charles Spurgeon preached an amazing sermon on that passage from Isaiah called The Sight of Self. And he explains, understand, it's only spiritually enlightened people, it's only regenerate, it's only Christians who are even able to perceive that all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags. He says, notice what he says. It's not our unrighteousness that's filthy rags. It's our righteousness. And if it's our righteousness that's filthy, what must our unrighteousness be? As Virgin explains, that though we are forgiven as Christians, it's sure, but we are not cured from the ongoing wrestling with sin, and all sin is reprehensible. So he continues explaining this passage like this. He says, the expression filthy rags in the Hebrew is one which we could not with propriety explain in the present assembly. Suffice it to say that rags which have bound up a foul, putrid running sore and our righteousnesses are compared to such rags as these. Oh, tell me not that we exaggerate when we describe the fall of man. Oh, sirs, say not that we love to depreciate our race and that we slander the noble creature man. All those things which you call exaggerations fall below the mark, even below the mark of what some of us have felt concerning ourselves, and that is very far from what God knows of our state. Sirs, there is in our prayers sin. They need to be prayed again. There is filth in the very tears that we shed in penitence. There is sin in our very holiness. There is unbelief in our faith. There is hatred in our very love. There is the slime of the serpent upon the fairest flower in our garden. Now do you see why there are layers of consecration? Now do you see why God warns Moses? Friends, we are far more sinful than we realize. And it is only in minimizing God and thinking small thoughts of him that we can ponder 
that we have such a thing as little sins. That's why it's been well put. Friends, when we confess sin, we're admitting that we have lifted up ourselves against God. We're acknowledging that we have refused to listen when he has spoken to us in his word. We've turned away from his purpose and meaning for our life. We've rebelled against the king of kings. We've overthrown his reign. We have hated God. That's what Romans 8, 7 says. See, in the least degree of sin is hostility against God. And just as every drop of poison is poison, so is every kind of sin. There are no small sins in contrast with a holy God, which is why Christians used to joyfully sing, Before thee, God, who knowest all, with grief and shame I prostrate fall. I see my sins against thee, Lord, the sins of thought and deed and word. They press me sore, I cry to thee. O oh God, be merciful to me. Well, Christians, how about for us? Are we growing in our understanding of our sins in contrast with a holy God? Or are we prone to cover them up with platitudes? This chapter, Exodus 19, three times up and down, is pressing home God's holiness and in contrast our sinfulness and need forgiveness. So God makes himself known through redeeming a people, and he makes himself known through consecrating a people, and finally he makes himself known through appearing to his people. Let's look at verse 16 through 25. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. And Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Matthew Henry, famous commentary on the whole Bible, comments on this. He says, Never was there such a sermon preached before nor since as this was right here preached to the church in the wilderness. See, with the mountain shrouded in thunder and lightning and the sound of the trumpet finally sounds, we read the people trembled, the whole congregation trembles. And God hasn't even descended upon the mountain yet. But Moses leads his trembling people to stand at the foot of the mountain behind the perimeter. And then these remarkable sights are taking place. Moses calls out to God and God vocally responds and descends upon the mountain. Only after Moses has led this trembling people out to the base of the mountain do we read of his coming. The imagery is just stacking references. It says God comes down in fire. It's like a furnace or a kiln burning with smoke pouring off of it. The mountain trembled violently. First the people and then the mountain. 
And yet Moses speaks, and God speaks back. And then verse 20 through 24, they seem completely redundant unless we have the view of holiness and sin, which I dealt with in the second point. The third time, God says, go back down and tell them not to come up the mountain. That only makes sense if we have a high view of God's holiness. The repeated trips up and down the mountain, the repeated commands to consecrate further are pressing us to see this is a fearful thing to stand before a holy God, which is why commentator Alec Motier puts it well. An easygoing people believe in an easygoing God. See, Israel has arrived at the place of God, but merely coming to God was only the first step. We must understand who God is, who we are, and how our lives have to be reshaped accordingly. So one commentator put it well. Sinai leaves no doubt God wants a relationship with his people, but it also leaves no doubt that God is dangerously holy. So holy, in fact, that in the next chapter, the people will go on to say, is Moses, please have him stop speaking. We need far more than just a mediator to, to keep us away from God's holiness. We can't even hear his voice. They cannot bear God addressing them. And as you wend your way through the rest of the book, this event should have been this incredible capstone to God's deliverance and his sending Israel off on mission. But that's not how the story plays out. You see, it shows us that while God's purpose was to make his people priests through redeeming them, through consecrating them, and through appearing to them, ah, we are so sinful we need something far more. And what was needed is explained to us later in commentary on this passage, which actually comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. I encourage you to turn there. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. It's on page 976 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Hebrews 12, 18. Throughout this sermon, the book of Hebrews is a sermon, as you're turning there, throughout this sermon, the pastor who's preaching this sermon to them, in the book of Hebrews, he's constantly contrasting and comparing the old covenant with the new. That's why I started my first point doing that. And here, he comes to the rhetorical climax of his sermon, and he's describing to them in visual terms, he wants them to picture it and see it in their minds, what he's already been arguing for 11 chapters theologically of the greatness of the new covenant compared to the old covenant. So first, in verses 18 through 21, he's going to speak about them coming to this Mount Sinai that we've been reading about in Exodus. So Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So see, whereas Israel came to this tangible mountain right in front of them, in this mountain where they were commanded not to touch it, and where they heard God the author of Hebrews says, that's not the way that our covenant works. It works differently, though it is just as much an appearing, he's going to go on to say. So look at verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to the judge, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, as those who've been spiritually resurrected have spiritually come not to Sinai, but to Zion, to, to the completed mountain, the mountain that is going to be coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, he says. And now it's heavenly and spiritual, but in Revelation, we'll read it, it will come down physically. That's what we have come to spiritually because we've been made alive in Christ. He says we've been joined to the church universal, the church of the firstborn, that is the universal church which is assembled now in heaven and of which we participate in as we gather physically here. He says our names are written in heaven because God, the judge of all, will make all those united to Christ Jesus perfect in the new covenant. But then he closes with that weird line. But what about better word than the blood of Abel? Well, back in Genesis, the blood of Abel cried out for judgment, God says to Cain. Your brother's blood cries out to me in judgment. The point being made here is Jesus' blood cries out that we are permanently cleansed from sin. See, unlike Moses who had to go up and down the mountain, up and down, to mediate again between the Lord and the people, who had to warn again and again of God's holiness and the people's sins, here, God's Son came down once, and he took on flesh, adding a human nature, And after dying to satisfy God's just wrath against his people's sin, he rose again and ascended once for all into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father where he perfectly completed his priestly work, ever interceding for guaranteeing the salvation of his people. You see the parallel then. Who did Moses mediate for? Well, Israel. Who does Jesus mediate for? His new covenant people. All the new covenant members who've been made alive in Christ, washed in his blood, are those whom Jesus mediates for. And any idea that Jesus, the great high priest, can fail to intercede for his people, who can fail to keep his people until the end is a dangerous one. We dare not confuse his finished work with our failing and faulty work. The point the author of Hebrews goes on to make is, yes, Christians have to keep growing in repentance. Yes, we're going to continue to press on and need to, to stumble. We'll slowly grow in holiness. Oh, yes, and amen to all those truths. But the central argument of the book of Hebrews is the perfection of Jesus' high priestly work, which is contrasted against the imperfection of Moses's. That's the point. That's why the visions of the two mountains are being contrasted here. God brought Moses and Israel to a mountain where both the people and the priest were trembling in fear. But Hebrews says, we have spiritually come to a mountain that brings eternal hope, eternal security. It is the church of joy and festivity and rejoicing, the eternal mountain of the Lord. So see, friends, Jesus does not merely carry our response back to God. He unites us to God. As Ephesians 2 says, Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins and children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, because he is rich in mercy and the great love with which he's loved us, has made us alive and raised us and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, he might put on display the riches of his grace and kindness 
toward us who are in Christ Jesus. The, the preacher of Hebrews is doing the same thing here. We have come to Mount Zion, covered with Jesus' blood, which speaks a better word. It speaks the word eternally forgiven, redeemed, ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. See, friends, it is this message that we must respond to with grateful obedience. Because we have received a kingdom, he will go on to say, that cannot be shaken. Because we are members of the new covenant, that cannot fail. Unlike Sinai, it does not rest on us saying to God, all that the word of the Lord says we will do. It rests on Jesus' final word of it is finished. So friends, make sure we see what Sinai was teaching us all that long time ago. That we need a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. We need an appearing, but we need an appearing far more than fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. We needed God the Son in the flesh to live our life and die our death. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope that we have in the new covenant. Lord, we are not those who have to come before you trembling, worrying about are we holy enough? Have we done enough this week? No, we come boldly before the throne of grace because Jesus has said it is finished. So how we thank you for that truth. And would that cause us then to be those who are seeking to press on in living holy lives? We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.